<laughs> okay, so hello if you're listening to this. So this is by way of a very brief introduction to explain the massive plot hole that exists in our podcast series. I'm Tom Abba and he is... Walter Bjarnason. And you're going to be listening to us for the next sort of 45 minutes or so, um, talking about media forms and talking about things that interest us. But we didn't have a title for this podcast series for the first four or five weeks. We didn't have a clue. No, we didn't have a clue what the title was going to be. We used to do a podcast called This Is Not A Book that was following and reinterpreting and talking about a book we'd written, and we're going back five or six years now. But this was something different. So... It took us a few weeks to come up with the title. Obviously, you're listening to this on some kind of service. You've subscribed or you're just dipping in or you downloaded the wrong podcast by accident, um, in which case, thank you and welcome. But just as an explanation, the reason that you'll see, you'll hear two men talking about, in an animated fashion, the fact they don't know what this thing is called and the fact that it does have a, they have a title is a peculiar trick of what we're going to call a kind of time travel dilation thing. So we're, we're recording this now after having recorded the sixth episode in the series, in order that this can be placed back in our past on the first three or four, which from our point of view is in your future. So if, you, if you're confused by that, just imagine how we are. But yeah, this is called um, Not the Darkest Timeline. And thank you for subscribing, and we'll get out of your way now. Thank you. Yes, please enjoy. Who wants to do the introductory opening this time? I think it's up to you this time. <laughs> Okay, we are Untitled Multimedia Podcast. We'll figure out a good title and name for this at some point. That will... you know, we, we, we are three episodes in, so it's about time we did that. But yeah, let's, yeah. let's figure out when we get there. It will be astounding. No pressure. My name is Balder Bjarnason. I'm um, currently in Iceland drinking Danish Jule uh, Kvitel, and I butchered the, Danish pron- the pronunciation of the Danish there. Yes, so I'm the 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 webby technical person, but with a um, cultural analysis background and um, literature and things. And you are well. You're a generalist, and I think we, we covered that yes. last time. Hi, um, I'm Tom. Yeah, I'm Tom Abba. I'm an academic and an artist and a writer, and I'm in Bristol with a cup of ginger tea. Mm. Um, I, I can't do anything like accents and, and deep. It's Sunday afternoon, it's ginger tea time, it's, yeah, and here we are, and we're on the, this is the second of the actual podcast, but the third in the sequence, and this time it's you for the subject. Snowfall, the, back in 2012, the New York Times released a form, uh, format bombshell on, the, on news media for a news story that was probably not that interesting in its own right, but was given a a specialized, unusual at the time treatment in, in, in the form of a mini website discussing the story of of an avalanche in the States and it it brought in the the context, details, visualizations, audio and graphics and uh, and told the story and it it one of the things that we're probably going, uh, we're going to cover is the fact that um, a lot of it wasn't strictly speaking original, as in the, not in the sense that it hadn't been done before, but it definitely hadn't been done by a major news media outlet, and it definitely hadn't been done in this context where it was done to it was a decision that they were going to cover this story anyway, and it was a decision on their part to. 
treat the story this way, much in the same way that a magazine would make a decision to say, we've got this interview, we're going to, should we give it a spread or we're going to turn it into a proper feature? It's interesting that with Silent History and with Snowfall, we're both going back to 2012, that I know we said this would be a, an uncanon, this would be us looking back at some of the, the pieces of work that we felt were worthy of more attention. But I think it's interesting that the, both the two that we started with are, are coming up on eight years old, and that's just, I think that's worthy of note right at the moment. So in, in terms of its, and it's probably worth us talking a little bit about, a little bit about the context in terms of the story. And as you say, this is a story that um, they would have covered any, covered any way, but not necessarily in this level of detail. So one could describe this as as an opportunity that sort of presented itself in that regard? I mean, yes. I mean, one of the things that I found interesting, um, I mean, both that uh, sort of it's, it has several characteristics that are, are fairly normal now, as in you'd see them regularly in the way media outlets do websites and do stories. Mm -hmm. It's the integration of, of the uh, visualizations of data, um, yeah. animations thereof, animations that are triggered through scrolling, the integration of multimedia artifacts like audio and, and video, and the idea that you apply graphic design to the story and that the story is is co-authored essentially with the designers, which is something that mm. was always the case in print. But when it came to publishing on the web, the collaboration was with the designer wasn't there. The designer designed templates that you poured the content into. But it kind of was one of the early cases where they took the design stuff that, that they had on, uh, on staff and really gave them full reign on letting them design the story. Uh, so it's kind of it's kind of the process is where a large part of the actual innovation took place because like any of these individual elements, the um, scroll animation, the visuals, etc., they're all things we've seen we've seen before, whether in apps or in, in like one-off projects. But it's but the thing I found interesting is that it was because it was so unusual. It had to be created and and published entirely outside of the New York Times existing publishing workflow at the time. They couldn't. It it wasn't made and it doesn't still to this day. I don't think it exists as a part of their CMS, their content management system. It's literally something that somebody hand coded and uploaded the static files to a place that where it's just hosted on the web which is both probably a, a, a probably a, a, a promoted a level of innovation that you wouldn't see otherwise because if you're going to go completely custom why then you, why not just go all the way and just try all of the ideas that you've had yeah and and the world is your oyster, and you, you, yeah, you can pretty much do whatever you want. And, and to, to come back to a phrase that we've used before, and we will go on using again, this is, to me, I mean, to my mind, this is one of the first times that form followed content, that the, the, there was a kind of explicit relationship between those two aspects of we're here to tell a story, and we have a platform to tell it in, but the platform is largely, well, it's capable of a lot of things, but we need to, we need to kind of rewrite it in order to, to properly tell the story we want to tell the way we want to tell it. Yeah, and it's you mentioned the year 2012, and I think that's, hmm. I think it's interesting in that it's once you start looking back and looking at how uh, the, things looked like on the web at the time, things have changed a lot. The standard practice for on-web storytelling has changed a lot in the space of eight years. I mean, 
eight years ago, we had, was that like, is that before or around the same time that people were doing iPad apps? Um, like it's it's around the same time, yes. I think things like and I'm going to get my dates wrong here. The wasteland, which we'll touch at another point, in much of my mind is it's definitely post 2007 because yeah. it's post when you and I handed in our our doctorate, and it probably hits about that time when the iPad became a platform in its own right. That there was a sense that at least in the circles that you and I moved in in terms of publishing, that this was something that you could one monetize in a way that the audience would at least start to accept that and also that the the tools were mature enough and the platform was mature enough that there was a degree of, of innovation that was almost kind of permissible in that space the monetization aspect is something I, I want to touch on later on but not right now but I, because i think i think it's important to talk about the monetization monetization aspects in terms of how the format that Snowfall put together has spread. Yeah. Because I think that that's uh, the connection between the monetization and the spread of this format is going to be fairly obvious once we get, get, get to it. But uh, sort of, if you, uh, I want to continue on the context a bit. In that, uh, I, am I wrong in remembering that most of the news websites and blogs at the time were kind of blandly designed? They were the same template for everything, and it was kind of hard to drop in individual interactive element, elements into a regular um, story or blog post unless you were embedding a video. No, so it's, it's one of those moments where if we look back through um, the Wayback Machine, through Booster Kale's project, it's those times that we look at either early, I mean, Amazon's the obvious one, we look at it and go, oh my God, did we really buy anything from that? But also the BBC, the Guardian, the New York Times. Yeah, I mean, still we are, because of, because of the scale of the industry, we're largely, we it is largely template driven and that's yeah. always going to be the case. But I think, yes, to, to a much greater extent at that point, sort of um, the start of 2010, 2011, everything, I think workflow had become, at least to an outside observer, workflow had become the thing that a 24-hour news cycle had imposed on what you might see as web broadcast journalism, that there needed to be a way of managing this content that, you know, we, we I think we're probably, we were definitely around the time of the, the Daily Mail sidebar of shame, which is completely template driven to a horrific extent. But yeah, everything was designed to drop into a format and then readers would become familiar with that format and you could just drop more content in. But yeah, the the space for proper experimentation, for proper kind of consideration of of how we read in that space and how you could how you could integrate different elements. It had been seen on different platforms. You know, the the obvious example is an inconvenient truth. As as a was a large major piece of what we might we might now look back and go, oh my god, it's a PowerPoint presentation. And really, you know, to a large extent it is. But it's it was innovative in the space of trying to consider how you get across a fair a pretty complex argument. Well, it boils down to one very simple thing, but a fairly complex argument in terms of the kind of data it's presenting, that in a way, I think now and this is just something I, I noticed yesterday. And I, was, um, I, was just, I wasn't looking for anything on Twitter. I noticed something. We're actually really used to fairly, fairly rich visualizations that come in bite-sized chunks, and I think we can read them. We read them in a way that I'm not sure we would have been. We would have found as as easy ten years ago in terms of our, our kind of consumption of that kind of data. The whole sort of dynamic visualizations that respond to your interactivity a decade ago, there's a decent chance that most people would have just 
treated it as a static object yeah. and not really understood that fact that you can click around and select you know this political party to see its results in the in, in the election and it's kind of there's a level of media literacy that's grown up alongside this format and i think that's kind of necessary in that and that's kind of one of the reasons why there was uh, was both uh, a, a hype and then a backlash to Snowfall and Snowfall-like storytelling when it initially came out. Okay. Because when it came out, one thing that Snowfall did is that it used every tr- every trick it had in the book, and it, and it like it just went through the catalog of of things you could do for in Flash interactive movies or director CD-ROMs, and it just kind of just went through the you know filled the bucket of stuff, and because it's like yeah you know. They were working outside of the existing system, so why not just like stretch the boundaries? But media literacy at the time really had not followed, and also they pushed the boundaries in many ways on things that were in terms of what the distribution and the platforms weren't quite comfortable with yet, especially the one of the most controversial aspects of it, which still hasn't aged actually that well is the scroll jacking where they disconnect the your scrolling and the scroll position on the on the page and then uh, from the actual position of the page and connect it to animations instead right mm-hmm. and that has it's is one of the one of the things that's still a bit controversial today because scrolling scroll the scroll bar is an accessibility tool it's a a an affordance for users to understand where they are in the um, page and it's very easy once you get into these designs to completely disconnect the scroll bar from being a that that kind of wayfinding tool and that means that users get easily get lost in the narrative and that makes them very angry for understandable reasons it's, it feels to me and i'm i'm kind of conscious that as you said there is there is still controversy there's still controversy about what you could see as breaking one of the fundamental rules of web navigation of the, the, there's a thing that we know how to read this page because there is a thing there is a there is a, a visual interface sorry i'm dumbing this down completely and trying not to use ux terms but there's a there's a piece of the visual interface that the the grounds is in where you are because i i've said before i'm really interested in in how books operate and how books work in a way that is about our haptic response and our haptic our haptic relationship with them and you know i guess the the simple way of explaining scroll tracking is one of my one of my and I keep talking about this, one of my kind of the, the elegances of, of book design is when I open a book as flat as I want to open it, I know how far I am through yeah. it. And it's as if that that visual reference point with if it was scroll jack would no longer be true. Although as a designer, I'm interested in the innovation and what you can do in that space. And obviously there's a whole other section that we can go and talk about about what happens when media interfaces lie to us when they when they do break those rules. But yeah, without a doubt, there is a there is something quite fundamental that's a little bit scary and a little bit mm. irritating at the same time. That some, something I take for granted has gone and it's gone. I, yeah, I, I completely get that there is there is still controversy and there, there certainly would have been at the time. Oh yeah, it was especially among like user experience designers and user interface designers. They were like, oh my god, what are you doing? You're you're. Uh, and also back at that time, yeah. uh, it was much more common for platforms to have the scroll bar always visible as well, which is now kind of yeah. fallen by the wayside, which I think is a is a, a tragedy in terms of user 
user um, uh, usability, but I'm in a very small minority when, I, when it comes to that. But one of the things I find interesting when I was um, preparing for this by looking at how people are doing like snowfall type stories today, like looking at uh, like BBC still does, the New York Times still uh, does, Enercow or the Norwegian Broadcasting Company. They do them. And one of the things that's interesting is that they tend to be more subtle in how they connect things to the scroll bar than Snowfall was. Right. Which is the same match because Snowfall was really in your face with it. So it's like, bam. Yeah. And they tend to, like, uh, often, uh, like, most of the animations are, like, triggered by scrolling. So you scroll to a position and, they, and then that triggers an animation. But the animation is like an animated image or animated um, graphic rather than something that's animated by your scrolling. So it's 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 triggered by coming into view, and it's that's that's a, a, a slight tweak on the on the format, but it's, it makes it more more usable. And then they reserve the like for example, there's a recent news story at Enercow about the about the spread of suicidal ideation through social media, was made a huge impact in the Nordic countries, and their story on this was done snowfall style. And they reserved the primary scroll jacking animation for the core info, uh, infographic about the spread of like ideation and thoughts throughout a network on Instagram. Right. And so they reserved it for rather than having this as a reg, like these the scroll jacked animation as a regular beat through the story. They used triggered animation through the through the story and reserved the scroll jacking for the core argument for the like the gut punch impact on on how things are spreading and I think that's kind of it's interesting to see that people like it's uh, it's like the development of the novel after Robinson Crusoe it's that you you see somebody who like hashed out a lot of the initial ideas and then you you it's you follow through the novels afterwards and see how people are. The writers are learning how to use the format and how to become more effective with it in, in creative ways that you can't really, you can't account for that with like formulas or, or the templates. That's, you need to have a tool set. Like if these, if these, if these stories had to be, still had to be hand coded like Snowfall. You wouldn't get this learning, no. But because this has slowly been these these features have been ad added to the CM the the content management systems, the writers are starting to learn how to use them more intuitively. Does that make sense? They become modularized. Yeah. yeah, no, absolutely. It returns us to the point that I was hoping to in terms of sustainability and you know like the economic model. Yeah. Because there's one thing that New York Times, Netflix with Bondersnatch. And uh, Enercow and the BBC have mm. in common that one-off don't have, which is that they have recurring revenue. Netflix is a subscription business. Mm. New York Times is primarily like their 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 foundation revenue comes from subscription. Enercow or the Norwegian Broadcasting Service Company and BBC, they have recur recurring revenue through license fees mm. because they have a committed audience that they they have more freedom to experiment yeah. because the they can they have a recurring committed committed recurring revenue with a committed audience so they can invest in tools they can invest in the staff like the the staff the new york times has 
uh, for interactive graphics and interactive storytelling is amazing. They have some of the like the, some of the best people around. One program called Rich Harris, which is basically his tools are, are trans uh, have have transformed large parts of uh, the JavaScript web developer uh, web developer commu- community. He works doing the graphics for New York Times, like the interactive graphics, and so they. they their business model or you know the national broadcasting services to probably might not be accurate to call them business models but it's like a revenue model gives them the space to do digital experimentations that publishers who do books or one-off titles where each title has to build and engage its own audience they don't have the, that luxury there's it's very hard for their business model to sustain that level of const- like investment they don't, no, completely. And there's something else that occurred to me while you were talking in that with regard, I mean, on the one hand, the, the two ways of the two ways my brain is working on this. One is that there is, there's not only the space to do that, which you're absolutely right. There is also a need to do that to get content out there because yes. we are, we do exist in, you know, 24 hour news cycle is almost an old hat phrase now. It's a, it's an always on news cycle. There is a, no matter where you are in the world, no matter what time of day it is, you will expect to be updated on X, Y, or Z on anything that's happening on, you know, we're currently looking at a crisis developing at the moment in Iran in light of Trump's impeachment, in light of a whole set of things. And the analysis of that is happening in real time. It's We're not waiting for, as we, we haven't done for 10, 15, 20 years, we're not waiting for the next edition of a newspaper. We're seeing stuff being put out there. And that's something that publishing in the sector that we're used to working with or we've worked with elsewhere doesn't have there is there is there is a slow burn there is a looking for it's more like television there's looking for a transmission date yeah actually traditional television and actually you're right in the same sense netflix has exactly the same problem in that they they're not built on a a kind of bbc broadcast model of there are x number of channels or x number of hours a day and that's what you've got to fill netflix are throwing everything on the kitchen sink at this in the hope one look one expects in the hope that enough of those things stick and enough of those things have gained traction that gain an audience and this this also speaks to something which we i know we are going to talk about another point about the way netflix are responding to a or certainly in the last couple of years are responding to not so much audience drop-off but audience engagement they're releasing they're investing in two seasons of a thing and then dropping it they're they're not necessarily committing to all the way through and there are bigger there are bigger players and there are bigger mechanics at play above that but yeah within certainly within broadcast journalism what we see is web broadcast journalism there's there's a need there's a need not only to to generate content and to keep generating content and as you said that that's built on the one hand from because largely their revenue is built from advertising and subscription but also Alongside that, and this is something that I find frustrating about kind of traditional or convert, not traditional, but kind of more established media organizations within journal, web journalism. There's, there's also a need for novelty. There's a need to engage an audience in in a way that hasn't been seen before and to push the envelope a little bit more. And it doesn't happen all the time. And things like Snowfall happen, and as you've, you've indicated already, they do break the landscape a little bit, and they break enough rules that they start to redefine some of the, what those rules might be. Mm. But that novelty is almost built into the form. So it's built in much more than it is in other sectors. Mm-hmm. I mean, well, yeah, it's, uh, they definitely they, they definitely have the issue where the globalization of the web has brought all of these media outlets in competition with each other and which is the reason why if you're a small you know news website based in the states 
you're competing with The Guardian. You're competing with New York Times. I mean, before you were just competing with the local, uh, the other local rag, and you know that those were the, the only journalists you had to be better than. It was, uh, but now you're 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 literally competing with the world's. Uh, the world's best institutions at this sort of thing. I mean, you could debate the actual quality of the news reportage itself, yeah. but in terms of uh, the format and the design and the sort of creativity aspect of it, in the formal creativity aspect of it, these are there. Like the New York Times and the Guardian are are right up there. No matter what you think about their 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 take on things, but also one of the things that that, that we uh, sort of found found interesting is that by pushing the boundaries beyond what was possible in the content management systems of the time, Snowfall forced publishers to reassess Hmm. what do the boundaries of their content management systems have to be. It's like, we clearly need to be able to do more things than we used to. And so they've put a lot of work in the the meantime. Sometimes they outsource it. Like there's a business called Shorthand, which basically specializes in creating a and helping media outlets create snowfall tile stories. It's a tool specifically for that. But a lot of the time, they just, they expanded their CMSs to let people add, like drop in interactive objects, drop in video, drop in like uh, custom code here and there Mm. to expand that canvas to make sure that there's scope enough for different, uh, for each media, uh, each uh, team to differentiate itself within the boundaries of the system, which means that if you hire a good enough designer, okay. that designer can work within the system, within the boundaries of the CMS to create something that differentiates you from the competitors. So you can start competing by hiring the best people, irrespective of, yeah, irrespective of, of the, your, your code capabilities. Sure. And, and, and that content or that, that, that intellectual property becomes proprietary I mean, is that something, sorry, we're going into a different topic. Does that become proprietary as long as that designer is with you? Does the designer move that with them? I mean, that's it, we, we're into IP arguments and kind of where, where where you differentiate out from that. But that does seem to be, I mean, I'm I'm interested, and I have been for a long time, in the the kind of the, the power of, the power of coding, the power of coding as a as an industry that means that you do you do look and you mentioned already names that continue to work for the New York Times. It's interesting. I looked when we were talking. I, I googled Andrew Kuhneman, yeah, um, who's digital designer on this, who still works for New York Times eight years later. And I'm interested. I guess I'm, there's, there's an interesting from my point of view about what what has that done to roles that would previously have been very much behind the scenes that are now in that now have an opportunity to shape some of the ways in which we communicate and the ways in which communication tools are used. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, that ties in, I think both with the Andrew Kuhneman and Rich Harris, who both work for the New York Times, I can't remember where I read it. I think it must have been on Twitter. But I remember seeing some of them discuss how they work with news teams on important stories on how things are represented. Mm. And for example, like I know that the digital team for New York Times has on more than has on a few occasions created interactive graphics that are generated using code and but the core code also generates the same graphics for the print mm. so it's no longer the case where where the you'd have a print designer who'd design a graphic for print right. and then you'd have the digital designer who design an interactive graphic for the screen the same core code 
generate the graphic for both print and inter- and the, and the web, and the web version is interactive. Right. And it's I, th- I think that's that's something that can only come from both having people with experience because uh yeah having people with experience working for a long time and collaborating with the news team and the print team it's like you can't do that if you start siloing and separating separating out your digital teams and your coding teams away from the your, your print or 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 like editorial team it's it's like you need you need cross functional teamwork for this to actually work Completely. and i think that's something for that 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 news websites and news media has done that you don't actually see that much of outside. You don't see that uh, generally happen in publishers. I don't know. Yeah, in publishing, not so. I mean, I was thinking there about advertising in the sort of mid-90s, late-90s and the early 2000s as design agencies and these people I was working with at the time, the, the digital the digital design team was separate, were, were Quite some time there was a, there was definitely a role of, di- of director of digital, although you know we still know some of those in publishing. And the but that within say a client brief, the digital space would be handled separately, and that happened. I think that happened in ad agencies and design agencies and graphics agencies quite quickly. In that I think maybe because maybe because the ones I was dealing with were smaller, they weren't the scale of the New York Times. If there is a scale of the New York Times in ad agencies, that you you need to be nimble, you need to kind of cross those cross those boundaries and have those silos taken away. That maybe maybe that 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 mode of development, that mode of kind of concurrent thinking happens at different all we're seeing is happens at different paces in different industries because of the demands of it. Yeah. Because it takes a while for broadcast to catch up with or web broadcast to catch up with where graphics was 15 years before and that's that's frustrating as an educator it's frustrating as a designer it's frustrating as but it's a thing that's happened Mm. because the demands on different sectors are driven by economics by commerce by revenue streams by a whole set of things and also by audience and this is what we're coming back to in all of this is that what snowfall does is is re say re-educate but re offer the ability to relearn a way of engaging with content from an audience point of view as much as from a design point of view, as much as from a kind of journalistic perspective. It's it's inviting the readers into a space that says this is if this so this is the new norm because that sounds quite highfalutin and quite you know we <laughs> but 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 the, the, the ground shifts and the ground gets rewritten and the challenge is how do you engage with that and how do you read that and therefore what what do you push back against as a reader because we are all readers in that space and what do you what do we take as being comfortable what do we take as being acceptable where do, where does where does that evolution happen and what does what does Snowfall or what does the tools that Snowfall made look like eight years on? I guess is what I, where I'm interested in sort of moving this bit of conversation. An interesting part of it is that some of these, some of the tools for creating Snowfall style stories have actually failed quite miserably. Like um, the Atavist, who I think started out as an iPad, iPad magazine, and they had created this yes. this platform for creating, specifically for creating Snowfall style stories. And then they just petered out, ended up getting bought uh, by Automatic, the company behind WordPress, and basically stopped taking new customers. And, and uh, as far as I can tell, nothing, very little of their their platform or tool set ever made it into WordPress. So there was a there was definitely a hype um, around the whole idea of 
a new revolution in interactive storytelling that went very over the bo- overboard and and was completely disconnected from what the actual end user was interested in investing their time in and it's like you even saw this in websites like the verge the tech the tech outlet yeah they did a like the, their initial review of the apple watch was this very fancy scroll jacking animating things flying in and out snowfall style story and people really didn't like it and yeah. if you look at their their like subsequent review they tend to have have limited that kind of uh, storytelling to very specific features like they did a feature on you know how on zuckerberg um, a few months ago they did it for that but they don't do that sort of anymore for their bread and butter stories like reviews mm. so it's there's a there's a place for this, for going all the way. Sure. But also, I don't think people realize just how many of the small features in Snowfall have, have like uh, spread out into regular storytelling. Just the idea of having a little interactive vid- widget in the middle of a story that plays audio or having a, 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 an animated um, infographic or, you know, things, small things like that, that, People started to drop into even blog posts these days. It started to become more normalized. And I think that Snowfall had a role to play yeah. in that normalization because it the hype pushed the boundaries. So when there was a backlash pushing things back, it didn't go all the way back. It, it like we, we, we have a slightly more expanded space that, and things are a little bit more interesting. Sure. It, it, sort of, it sort of resettles the landscape a little bit that the, the thing that gets upset kind of throws. <laughs> All the snow up, everything lands down again, and then when the landscape, when, when everything settles down, things look slightly different. Things, things we've we've accepted some things, we've moved on from others, and some things that we will go back and we'll still challenge. But yeah, the sense to which these are these are things that leapfrog, that they, they they bounce forward and bounce back, and some people sometimes you sit on top of somebody else, but you move the landscape forward in in fits and starts. But things like snowfall, as you say, snowfall is. is in terms of its time, is not so revolutionary, but so revolutionary in terms of what it presents and the platform it presents it on, given its readership, that it it allows that that seismic shift to take place. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like the same thing. We it's like we've seen this happen so often in the history of computing and interactive media. You you saw Alan Kay's team, Xerox Park, put together the core like the core ideas of the you know the windows icons menu pointer user interface and they themselves were building on a Doug Engelbert augment project and it took yeah. a, basically a commercialization that watered things slightly down or, uh, both in the form of uh, the mac and in in, uh, in windows to actually break that those ideas that at that time were like the augment system is for dates from the 60s. So these were ideas that even at that time were 20 years old. At some point, things break out. And it sometimes you just need somebody who's commercially minded to do so. That's kind of the distinction. Also, you could see this at Apple itself, because the Mac was not the first attempt that Apple made at creating this sort of user interface. They tr- first tried it with Elisa, which was a huge, huge failure. No. It flopped completely. Mm. And uh, it took a, a complete rebuild of that same idea under more commercial auspices where that were, in a way, dumbing things a little bit more down to actually spread it out into into uh, into the public in the same way that yeah. 
Windows 95 is, is you know, as a biased Mac user, felt like a dumbing down of the of the Mac interface. But <laughs> it was also something that was necessary to spread the the that user interface par- paradigm further. Was to just be more commercial. Absolutely, it's it's almost hard to imagine what Windows looked like before Windows ninety five. In the sense to which that 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 does it does it shifts completely a very wide user base's appreciation of what the interface looks like of what the computer is there to do, and it has a different it has obviously. You know, a different effect in terms of education, in terms of how people see computers or see code or see their role in relation to, say, education around around using digital tools. But yeah, it, it these things, it's an evolving ecosystem, I guess is what we're saying. And these things, it requires occasionally something quite drastic to happen in order to move something forward, or else we just sit here and we're, we're doing the same thing 10, 20, 30 years later without any kind of real alteration. So I kind of... I sort of um, narrowing down to a thesis here, which is that to sort of around 2012, starting maybe in 2010, you uh, sort of at that time might have been a bit of a seen. We've might have seen a bit of a, a growth in known ideas from interactive media and uh, multimedia design starting to become more mainstream because mm-hmm. the potential and platform for commercialization and mass media appeal through the web was finally there. It's like the, the web had reached a certain kind of maturity yeah. where it could finally be used as a distribution vector for ideas that had been tried out and tested very well in like preceding for, uh, uh, formats which weren't as conducive to global distribution. Like CD-ROMs is a very awkward format to distribute content in it's just true yeah no absolutely what what cd-roms do and this is worthy of another conversation is that they they normalize a certain set of engagements a certain way of thinking about how we how we navigate that data because with with certainly with an awful lot of content especially with this one we're we're looking at what we're really looking at is is communicating data and communicating something to an audience and and then the platform is how do you communicate that how do you package that in certain ways that are that are the equivalent as you said at the very start of this saying well we're going to make a feature in a magazine out of this rather than simply an editorial piece it's not going to be a piece of news reporting it's going to be a big in-depth expose with call outs with things on sidebar with i'm thinking about print here but it's how do we how do we make that work within this space and and absolutely i think that you're right cd-roms the ipad as a platform and the ubiquity of of certainly the ipads the sense of, of touch interface, of touch as a as a way of engaging more than with a mouse or with a scroll or with a with a trackpad, I think opened up a way of thinking around how do, how do I as a, as a human being engage with what is purely we know is purely digital data and pure digital information, but how do I do it in a way that feels like I'm exploring something? Because say you know alongside that we'd had I mean there is always the predict the future by showing it we'd I mean minority report is around about the same time which is a technology we've not really seen come to pass in terms of its user interfaces but there are there are things that point the way toward different ways of visualizing data of exploring data that I think 10 years on from that point have become a little more normalized in how we see things and how and how we deconstruct stuff that we've moved on from I mean, in terms of just on data, we've moved on from a kind of standard Excel. This is what data looks like. It's a pie chart, and that's all you're going to get to a much more nuanced understanding and being able to read that. And that's for good and for ill. You know, that means that charts can be or data can be manipulated very easily and very quickly because we don't, we, the great 
on Wash Public. Don't always look twice. We don't always look at the deeper, the scales and the graphs here or what this data pertains to, but actually we're used to reading in a richer fashion, because you what I'm saying. I mean, it's another way of, um, of describing it would be we we now understand that like you always need to contextualize data with some sort of story and now it's more accepted to tell that story using interactivity and like like contextual design yes but one of the problems you always have with stories is that stories through reframing data can completely change how we understand it without actually changing the data so we can come away with completely different uh, understanding of reality based on the same set of data, yes. but because we uh, experienced them through two, through two different lenses that were the design and the interactivity surrounding it. Mm. And that's something that you see is actually playing out quite starkly in modern media. And now you have the right-wing media and you have the you know centrist media and then you have the left-wing media and they're all telling very, very different stories. And they and there's nothing nothing in com- in co- that they have in common in terms of worldview Conversely, there's also more international and global collaboration going on. Like, for example, there was a recent story in Iceland, which was given internationally the charming moniker of fish rot about Icelandic fishing company that was managed to take over the Nigerian uh, fishing industry through bribery and corruption and money laundering, and this was uh, this was a story that was uh, told in uh, collaboration with. This was just like. A few weeks ago, done in collaboration between uh, as a collaboration between the Icelandic National Broadcasting Service, Al Jazeera, and um, the Icelandic branch of WikiLeaks. Yeah, it's actually the interesting part is that it was published simultaneously on by the Icelandic outlet uh, as a as a video documentary, as a mini website, both in English and Icelandic, and as a print book. Wow. Like all at the same time, you know, embargoed. So it's like nobody knew this was coming. And it was just like, you know, one, two, gut punch, you know, sucker punch. Just, you know, really good journalism. But it was like that level of international collaboration is something that you don't, uh, didn't see that uh, that much. I think it's probably pioneered by some of the work, the early work of WikiLeaks before it got hijacked by certain, certain individuals. This speaks to things that we've talked about already in this with regard to media literacy and media education. Is It's really important to read the small print and to read what's there and also not to be to challenge to challenge sensibly what's out there. And I think that's one thing that's something that Snowfall has has enabled. You know, this is and this is an evolving picture. The the sense of our our literacy with media is a moving target, is an evolving field, is not something that you can pin down to 1990 or 2000, 2010 and say, that's it, we now know everything. It's it's very simple to say fake news is a thing and is an absolute noun and is there. Actually, manipulation of data is, I mean, really what we're talking about here as much as Trump standing up and, and saying black is white and white is black. Um, the, the gray areas are possibly where as much danger exists. The gray areas by looking reasonable and and yeah. turning a, turning the data into a into a story that sounds familiar and compelling. That that's the dangerous part. That's where you bring people over. Yeah. And most of the studies on the what's it called where they sort of people are turned more extremist over a period of time. Most of the research I've seen shows that you don't start off with the 
blatant fake news or mm. the the completely over the top things. People start off on the edges. Okay, on that note, a very cheerful note that the world is going to hell in a handbasket and we should read the gray areas. I'm going to see us we call a halt there. We're, we're going to come back next week and I'm going to propose because it's my turn that we're going to talk about we're going to talk about podcasts with a and I'll tease this with a kind of Lovecraftian bent to them. Okay, well, we'll I'll, I'll have some thoughts and we'll spend some time picking them apart. Okay, Boulder, thank you very much. You've been Boulder Barrison. I've been Tom Abba. We will be back next week.